When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Southern Democrats, the all-white party before the Voting Rights Act of 1965, before its members all became Republicans, and the Democratic Party in the South now, where Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke are building something new. Historian Michael Kazin will comment. Also, Halfway through Trump's term and the week after International Women's Day, it's a good time to look at the big picture of where women stand in the United States and around the world. The good news and the bad news, Katha Pollitt has that. But first, the Democrats announced they will hold their 2020 National Convention, where they will nominate the next president of the United States in Milwaukee. For comment on the challengers to Trump and the centrality of Wisconsin to that effort, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. We reached him today at an airport on the way back to Madison. John, welcome back. (laughs) I apologize for any background sound, my friend, and I look forward to talking about these good topics. Well, the Democrats picking Milwaukee indicates that the National Party regards Wisconsin as a key battleground they must win in order to recapture the House. Trump, of course, carried Wisconsin narrowly two years ago. But then in the midterms, of course, the Democrats came back strong in Wisconsin, defeating Governor Scott Walker and sending Congressman Paul Ryan into retirement even before the election. What's it going to take for the Democrats to carry Wisconsin in 2020? Not much, really. And that's sort of the the tragedy of 2016. If you look at Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, the three states that gave Donald Trump the presidency uh, with their electoral votes, because remember, Donald Trump lost the popular vote in most democracies in the world. He, He wouldn't have become president, but in ours, because we had this weird retrograde, you know, 1787 system, uh, you can lose but win if you win in narrowly in a couple of states. So the, the couple states was Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. If you added up all the votes in those three states, you end up with about 75,000 votes. So it's about 75,000 votes 
shifted, you would have had uh, a different president. And um, in Wisconsin, you're talking about 22,000 votes. That was that was the difference. Now, uh, how might the the Democrats have gotten those 22,000 votes in Wisconsin? I don't know, John. Maybe the Democratic nominee could have visited the state sometime <laughs> after the Democratic convention. Good point. That didn't happen. And so, uh, you know, there's a there is a little bit of uh, humor floating about in that um, this time it's for sure that the nominee of the Democratic Party will be in Wisconsin after being nominated. <laughs> I think you're right. So right now, Super Tuesday is almost exactly one year away And, of course, we're already reading a huge amount about the horse race among the candidates. There's a whole lot of them. But at The Nation, we've been more interested in what we call the ideas primary. But it seems like almost all of the front runners have endorsed the same ideas. Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, a $15 minimum wage, free college tuition. What do you make of that? Well, uh, we're winning. Uh, light are prevailing uh pop the champagne cork look these ideas which bernie sanders put on the table yeah with the support by the way of a lot of movement there are people working on these issues long before bernie sanders you know moved to them to the front burner but sanders's candidacy um you know kind of made people start to think wow okay maybe we could talk about single-payer medicare for all health care maybe we could talk about free college maybe we could talk about a host of uh, changes that that really would produce not just a different politics, but uh, different governance uh, if, say, Democrats were to come to power. And now you do see a lot of candidates embracing it. This is where it gets interesting, though. Two things that I think are important. Number one, you want to look at how they embrace. I mean, what are their wiggle words? What are their passions in this regard? The fact of the matter is, it's not really about taking the stance on a particular issue, and some people get very purist on this. What it really is about is understanding why these issues have come to the fore. These issues are suddenly very, very necessary in a changing American experience. Uh, We've said it before, and say it again, we're 30 years into globalization, 20 years into a digital revolution, changing everything about how we communicate, 8 to 10 years into an automation revolution that is and will change everything about how we work. Um, And so when we understand that, uh, as we move toward gig economies, as we move toward a real transition of, you know, workplace and everything else, you're going to need some guarantees that in many cases a lot of people used to get from their workplace. Uh, That's certainly in the area of healthcare, but also education and a host of other uh, demands, if you will. America will move in the 21st century toward a social welfare state. It won't perhaps go as far as Norway or Sweden or, you know, a number of Iceland, pick the country, uh, but it will certainly have to go as far as Germany has gone and a host of other countries. This isn't a debatable point. We will either do it or uh, we will have a chaos that will ultimately uh, not just destroy society, but destroy our economy. And so um, these are these are rational steps making these moves. Now, the one final thing I would suggest to you in this regard that's important is but you also want to hear people speaking seriously about how to reform the system quickly. And that is not merely the 
economic system, we're also talking there about the political system itself. And so it's vital that you hear these candidates saying, for instance, as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, some others are saying, um, we have to get statehood for the District of Columbia and for Puerto Rico. They can no longer be American citizens who don't have senators and don't have voting representatives and don't have, you know, in the case of Puerto Rico, a, a vote as regards the president of the United States. Uh, that's true for other other territories and possessions of the U.S. as well. They have to have full voting rights and full representation rights. The form it takes can be debated. Um, we have to get rid of the Electoral College. It won't happen quickly. We understand the complexities of that, but that has to be a priority. And frankly, we have to look at, at the corruption of the process by which we choose members of the Supreme Court, and, um, and that's worthy of a debate. Now, I will say that among the candidates, now, when you start to talk about stuff like that, the candidates begin to distinguish. Yes. And yes. I'm noting that there are a few who really are stepping up as reformers, and those are going to be the interesting ones. And we also need to talk about vote suppression, gerrymandering, such a crucial role in the 2016 election. What's going to happen in Wisconsin, one of the states that vote suppression played a role in 2016? It's a huge issue, and you're I'm so glad you bring it up. In fact, frankly... In so many of these battleground states, we've seen, you know, real efforts to do uh, multiple forms of voter suppression. Um, you know, look, uh, it happens in Wisconsin. You now have a Democratic governor. And um, while some of these uh, more restrictive rules may still be on the books in some cases, uh, the energy of state government will now be increasingly on the side of high turnout elections, making the system work. I mean, just simple stuff like making sure that it's easy to get an ID, easy to get the, you know, if you're going to be required to have an ID, that it doesn't cost you money, things of that nature. And um, frankly, Tony Evers, the new governor of Wisconsin, has been very outspoken on a host of these issues. Um, and I think you'll see, you'll see some progress there. There will still be a push and pull. I mean, it continues. The other thing is, I think if we're going to talk about voter suppression, um, be careful not to focus it entirely on the state. We'll also understand that how the census is conducted in 2020 yes. uh, is a huge issue as regards how we do, deal with representation issues, because that census is going to decide um, you know, how we divide up legislative districts, congressional districts, etc. And if I can just point out one really important thing that happened in Congress last week, please, um, we had H.R. 1, which is the... Uh, uh, government, you know, political ethics reform bill that came through. The amendments that were put on that bill uh, were tremendous, especially as regards uh, criminal justice, prisons, things of that nature. Um, there's something known as prison gerrymandering, uh, which is a, is a horrible thing that's done. You know, the census has in the past, in, in states in some cases, have counted uh, people who are in prison as residents of the prison even though they can't vote at the prison. And so they aren't counted as residents of their home territory, where they come from, where their family is, where they will go back to, and frankly, where they need representation. This so-called prison gerrymandering effectively creates a circumstance where um, rural areas where prisons are often located have disproportional numbers. They literally have more representation than urban areas. In some states, it's a number of legislative seats. And Congressman Mark Pocan, the uh, co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, put an amendment onto H.R. 1 
to tell the census folks not to do prison gerrymandering anymore. Now, that's a huge, huge issue. And we still have to work on it. We've got to get, you know, we'd like to get the census to talk or the Senate to talk about it. We'd like to really make movement on it. But just putting these issues on the table is a big deal and understanding all of the ways in which, uh, frankly, voting rights and voting participation are undermined uh, is vital if we're going to begin to address it. Looking at the Republican side, Trump, remarkably, has not really tried to expand his base, but his base remains loyal despite everything he's done to betray them. Uh, There's two views of what to do about this. One is that Trump's base is is hopeless. They're deplorable. Uh, We're never going to win them. And that the way to defeat them is to restore what we used to call the Obama coalition, the people of color, the young voters, the women. There are more than them than ever before. If they will register and vote, we can defeat Trump's base easily. The other view is that Trump's base has some real issues, and some of them at least should vote for our candidate because we really want to help them. Where do you stand on this issue of appealing to Trump's base? All of this and everything (laughs) is my my policy. I believe that uh, the Democratic Party has been criminally negligent in two areas. One, mobilization of and care for and support of its base, of its uh, you know, core voters. I mean, these, you know, we know the people who are quite loyal to the party, and um, there should be a massive mobilization of them. It should certainly be among people of color and uh, working class people of all races. Um, it should be young people because polling shows that young people are disproportionately inclined. So, you know, I mean, that's one side of it. And mobilization aimed at and really building that, that, as you refer to it, Obama coalition out, uh, is vital. That, you know, that should be step one. It's, it's, it's absurd that you wouldn't, wouldn't be doing that and, and putting a multiplier on it, doing it times 10. Um, but at the same time, the Democratic Party has been negligent in messaging as regards issues. And the party has to have, as Senator Sherrod Brown and some other people suggested, a real kind of dignity of work message. A message that says, you know, look, we understand that, you know, the great majority of Americans work and a lot of them work at jobs that aren't all that great. And uh, the Democratic Party should have absolute clarity as regards which side it's on. Right. It is on the side of the working class, of people of all races, all backgrounds who work for a living, that they should be paid a fair wage, that they should get the benefits they need. And frankly, that they should have the protections that they need in the workplace. Um, you put those two together. You put the mass mobilization of the base together with a, a much more coherent and pointed uh, economic message in combination with a broader societal message. And I think you, you do have a winning coalition. In fact, I think um, it, it could in some ways recreate what you saw with the Obama coalition, but it could take it even further. And frankly, that's what I want to do. I would like to see, and I'm not talking about a party here, I'm talking about you know, what I'd like to see to come from the next election, and that is a signal that the United States is not just going to replace a Donald Trump, but it's going to replace the, the politics of compromise and concession that made a Donald Trump possible. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. 
pleasure to be with you, brother. Halfway through Trump's term and the week after International Women's Day, it's time to look at the big picture of where women stand in the United States and around the world at this point. For that, we turn, of course, to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and columnist for The Nation. She also publishes in The New Yorker and The New York Times. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, International Women's Day was March 8th. I did not get my wife flowers. How bad was that? <laughs> well, let me tell you, if you were in uh, many parts of the world, that would have been very bad. Uh, almost as bad as a boss not giving his secretary flowers for uh, Secretary's Day. But, but didn't International Women's Day at least start out as being something different from Valentine's Day or any of the other official floral holidays? Well, it did. It did. It was started by socialists in 1909, and it was celebrated for many years, mostly in the left world. But one thing I, I notice is every celebration of women, no matter where it begins, uh, Mother's Day started as a pacifist holiday. Before you know it, it turns into this occasion for faintly guilt-ridden offerings from men and children. It's like they, they think, I know something's wrong with this, but I can't put my finger on what it is. Here's some flowers. Well, your new column at The Nation, just to change a key here, has a shocking photo of flowers on International Women's Day. It's a picture of flowers and cards placed on the ground in tribute to women killed by their partners, marking International Women's Day in Bucharest, Romania. That was a yes. shocker. Yes, yes. There are a number of places where they use the, the day to call attention to violence against women. Jess Phillips, who is an MP in, um, in the UK, reads out loud all the women who, who have been murdered by men in the UK that year. Well, let's, let's, let's switch to, to good news and talk about <laughs> briefly what women have to celebrate this year. And let's start right here at home in the Good old USA. Obviously, all those women winning seats in Congress and taking those seats this year uh, after the midterm elections is a big thing. It's huge. It's so great. And so many of them are young, too, which is really wonderful. There are 102 women now serving in the, in the House, um, and that's the largest number ever. And it, it includes a record, record number of women of color, the first Muslim, the first Native American women, two of each. But when all that is said, women still account for only 23.4% of total House members. The U.S. does poorly uh, when it comes to female parliamentarians. Guess where we are, John? Oh, I don't know, third or fourth? No, 78. Oh, wow. Tied with Montenegro, according to the Interparliamentary Union. Well, who's um, at the top of the list? Don't ask me that. Uh, oh, I know the answer to that. It's Rwanda. Rwanda is, I think, the only country in the world that is majority women parliamentarians. And then also at, uh, toward the top are Cuba, Bolivia, and then you get to Sweden and places like that. But, you know, the interesting thing is 50 countries have lower houses composed of 30% or more women. And most of those countries, there's a quota. 
you know, that there has to be like 30% or whatever of women. Quotas work very well for this purpose. But the, the thing that's unfortunate, and it doesn't get noticed enough, is that some of the countries where women do really well in parliament are countries where parliament really is just a rubber stamp for the, the top guy. For example, Cuba, or for that matter, Rwanda, which is not exactly a very democratic place. So quotas and have a dictator. <laughs> that's the way to go. <laughs> that's not fair. Be a Nordic country like Sweden or Iceland or Norway. And how many countries give women equal legal rights with men in the workplace? Oh, this was really discouraging. There are six, six countries, six countries in the whole big world, and they are Belgium, Denmark, France, Luxembourg, Sweden, and get this, Latvia. Wouldn't our oh. grandparents be surprised? Find <laughs> Latvia way up there. Um, and these are the only countries where women and men have equal legal, legal rights in the workplace. And guess where the U.S. comes in on that? I don't measure? know. 78th? I give up. No, no. Better than that. 66. <laughs> oh, man. So, but think of it this way. A half dozen countries is not a lot, but it's up from zero a decade ago. Let's talk about the uh, persistence of discrimination and, and violence against uh, women in, in other countries outside the United States. So what, what's the bad news on the discrimination and violence front? In Argentina, this is one of the worst stories that I came across. An 11-year-old rape victim was denied an abortion, although it should have been legal, even by their very restrictive laws. And instead, they kept postponing it and making a fuss, and doctors said, oh, I won't do it, and the hospital, you know, they, they postponed it through various subterfuges until she was 23 weeks pregnant, and then they gave her a C-section, and the idea was, well, maybe this fetus will be viable, but it kind of isn't, and, and you know, this is an 11-year-old child. It's Imagine terrible. putting a little girl through that. Hmm. I, I just can't get over it. I just can't get over it. And then, you know, in more probable terrible news for women, in Afghanistan, whatever we think about, you know, it's good that we're withdrawing. The Taliban is poised to join the government. And, you know, maybe that will mean fewer civilian casualties, which there have been a lot of this year. But it has to be bad news for women's education, employment, human rights. And women are so far not being included in any of the, uh, the peace discussions. And what's the worst news you have? Well, I think that, you know, in a lot of countries, women are edging forward. And it is, you know, the two steps forward, one step back thing we see with so much human progress. But there is a country where it's pretty much all backwards, and that's Russia. This year, it decriminalized domestic violence that doesn't break bones. (sighs) Yeah. And that was Putin's party that was very keen on doing this. It's really pretty shocking. Each year, this really shocked me, 14,000 women are murdered in Russia, mostly by male partners. 14,000 women, that is an enormous number of people. Um, In the United States, the number of women murdered by their partners is something, it's somewhere between 1,200 and 1,500. Uh, And that's a, you know, that's a very big difference. 
between us and them. So just to end on a weird note, (laughs) Vladimir Putin celebrated International Women's Day with an address in which he applauded Russian women as, quote, beautiful, bright, and charming. He went on to say, you manage everything at work and at home and still say beautiful, bright, and charming. We men must say frankly that it's not always easy for us to be worthy of you. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about <laughs> what to celebrate and mourn this International Women's Day. Reader at thenation.com. Katha, it's always great to have you on the show. It's always fun. When Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, he told his assistant Bill Moyers that Democrats had, quote, lost the South for a generation. In fact, of course, it's lasted a lot longer than that. The white voters who blocked black people from voting and made the solid South Democratic for decades quickly became Republicans after 1965. And today they are Trump supporters. But the story of Southern Democrats is more complicated than that. And for that story, we turn to Michael Kazin. He teaches history at Georgetown. He's the co-editor of Dissent and a contributor to The Nation. He's written many books. The latest is War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918. Michael Kazin, welcome back. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, the same white Democrats who created Jim Crow after the Civil War and blocked black people from voting for decades also allied on some issues with liberals and progressives from the North during the 1930s, and they supported parts of the New Deal. What's the story here? Well, the Democratic Party was a party that was, uh, I'd say, dedicated to what uh, some authors of a recent book call egalitarian whiteness. And both of those uh, words have to be taken seriously. Of course, it was a party of white supremacy. It was a party that supported slavery for a long time, opposed abolition of slavery, opposed the 14th and 15th Amendments in Congress, and, as you said, instituted Jim Crow in the southern states uh, and to some degree in some northern states as well. But at the same time, after all, there was a party that had to win the votes of white uh, uh, working people and small farmers uh, in the south, and where, which was the, the base of the Democratic Party. And to do that, they took uh, what you might call populist uh, stands, uh, bashing Wall Street, bashing big industrial corporations, uh, uh, calling for uh, certain welfare measures to help uh, white people only. Um, And in the 1930s, of course, with the Great Depression, um, many white people in the South, like uh, people of all races everywhere, were in terrible shape, unemployed, uh, losing their land, losing their houses. And so it's not surprising, I think, that that these Dixiecrats, as we later would call them, uh, white Southern Democrats in Congress and also in the states as well, supported unemployment compensation, supported Social Security, uh, supported unions for white people only. Um, and really the change that we now take for granted of, of white Southern voters voting conservative on almost all issues really happens uh, after the Democratic Party embraces civil rights. And that doesn't really happen until the 1940s. So on the, the key... New Deal legislation like Social Security or the minimum wage, how are these structured to benefit only white people? Well, 
take uh, Social Security for a long time. Uh, it didn't cover until the 1950s. It didn't cover uh, agricultural workers uh, or uh, domestic workers. And of course, that were the major occupations for black men and women uh, in the country, in the South, uh, especially. Um, the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, which was really a, a great step forward for unions. It uh, uh, put the federal government basically in charge of holding union elections and uh, made unfair labor practices by employers to be a violation of the act. Uh, again, that act uh, did not cover agricultural workers and domestic workers. In fact, it still doesn't today. So um, again, these were acts of egalitarian whiteness, uh, what the political scientist Ira Cass Nelson calls affirmative action for whites. And this story of Southern Democrats supporting progressive social welfare legislation actually starts well before the New Deal era. As you write in The Nation, there was a lot of activity in the progressive era before uh, World War I. Let's talk about economic justice legislation uh, under Woodrow Wilson, a white Southern Democrat. Yeah, Woodrow Wilson was, well, he was born in the South. He wasn't, he was uh, from New Jersey when he got elected president. He was governor of New Jersey. Uh, before then. But uh, when the Democrats took over Congress with Woodrow Wilson, actually a couple of years before that, and then uh, enlarged their majorities when Wilson was elected president in 1912, uh, almost all the, the chairmen of all the committees uh, in the House and the Senate, uh, who had the most seniority, uh, which is how you got to be the leader of a committee, uh, were Southern Democrats. And so if any progressive legislation on the economy was going to pass, it was going to pass because Southern Democrats supported it. And in fact, Every major piece of legislation that uh, Wilson signed to regulate big business from a major antitrust act to an eight-hour day for railroad workers, and there are many more as well, was basically crafted by a Democrat from one of the states that uh, barred most black people from voting. Uh, so again, this is a great example of the kind of egalitarian whiteness I, I talked about before. One of the biggest challenges to white Democrats in Congress were the anti-lynching bills that the Republicans and civil rights advocates introduced regularly. Tell us a little about the history of anti-lynching bills. Well, this, of course, corresponds to what uh, is a conventional wisdom and uh, correct wisdom about uh, about what Southern Democrats cared about most, I think. Uh, they wanted to make sure that the federal government would not have any say in uh, race relations in the South. Um, and for a time, uh, Republicans, at least some Republicans, supported uh, anti-lynching bills. Uh, they were still thinking about the legacy of Lincoln and for some of them the legacy of abolitionism in opposition to Jim Crow that came right afterwards. Um, but because the filibuster in the Senate, it was very difficult to get a, uh, um, a majority to cut off debate. Um, you needed actually two-thirds of the Senate to, to cut off debate uh, back then. And, and, and so it was, uh, it was very tough to, because, because the southern states, even when Democrats were not in the majority in the Senate, uh, they usually had uh, either two-thirds or close to two-thirds of seats in the Senate. Uh, and so they were able to defeat anti-lynching legislation. And after a while, Republicans sort of gave up on it. Uh, because they figured, what's the point, you know? And uh, some Republicans actually uh, came to agree with Democrats that, uh, well, maybe it's better off if these nice white people uh, um, help, quote, quote, black people to, uh, uh, to have a better life uh, if they feel like it. Uh, so pretty much both political parties gave in to Jim Crow by the 1920s. Anti-lynching bills still have not become law in the United States. I just looked this up. The Senate finally passed 
an anti-lynching bill for the first time in American history on December 19th, 2018. That's a couple of months ago. The House didn't pass it, so the Senate had to repass it. Uh, which they just did, uh, I think, in January. This is this is shocking. How can you be? How can you think? Well, lynching—that's that's okay. We don't need laws against lynching. I think a Democratic Congress is going to. Democratic House so will too. pass it. I think so too. Uh, if, if it could pass a Republican-controlled Senate, it could probably cast it, pass the Democratic-controlled House. <laughs> I think so uh, too. Of course, it, it doesn't have the same uh, meaning or importance now uh, once right. it gets passed, because right. back then it had a lot of meaning because Southern. Um, uh, juries, uh, all white juries, were just not convicting people for uh, for lynching uh, black uh, people, and and that's why uh, people like Ida B. Wells, the great civil rights uh, uh, activist, anti-lynching activist, uh, pushed so hard for uh, a federal anti-lynching bill so that this would become a federal crime. Uh, now, because you have civil rights laws. Uh, 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 and laws against uh, racial hatred and so forth, uh, or acts of racial hatred. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's still symbolically important, I think, but it's not uh, juridically necessary. Yeah, it's like it's like apologizing for slavery. It's apologizing exactly. for never having passed an anti-lynching bill when we could when we needed one. Well, uh, would have mattered. Would have mattered. So, if we look at the history of Southern Democrats. Probably the most famous Southern Democrat of of the 20th century was Lyndon Johnson, who you know ran for Congress in Texas. Many in the middle of the 20th century, he was a poor boy who grew up in the Depression. He grew up loving FDR. What was his early history as a Southern Democrat? Well, he was elected from a district in his home region of Texas, the Hill Country, west of Austin, and uh, he said as little as possible about civil rights. <laughs> um, in the 1930s when he was elected and really didn't take uh, even a mild stand in favor of the civil rights bill until he decided in the mid-1950s he wanted to be president. And he realized that the Democratic Party, which he would need to nominate him for president, had uh, taken a turn and was now in favor of a civil rights bill, uh, at least Northern Democrats. And he'd need to win, of course, Northern Democratic votes in the Democratic Convention to get nominated. So. when he was a majority leader of the Senate in 1957, he co-sponsored a pretty mild civil rights bill, but it was the first civil rights bill to pass Congress since Reconstruction. Um, and then, of course, once he became uh, president after JFK's assassination, then he he took this historic stand uh, to support the civil rights bill and signed it and also signed the Voting Rights Act. And, uh, you know, he realized, I think, as you said earlier um, in the show, that when he did that, he realized he was probably going to lose, you know, the White South uh, in the 64 election, which he did. <laughs> but he but he felt like he'd win so much else. Uh, uh, and he'd cement uh, African-Americans as a core uh, constituency of the Democratic Party for so many years to come that it, it wouldn't matter so much. So 1964, Johnson runs on a civil rights, strong civil rights plank. And as you say, uh, white Democrats in the Deep South vote for the Republican Barry Gold- Goldwater. Four years later, 1968, white Democrats in the Deep South voted, many of them, for George Wallace running specifically as a racist. In 1972, the former white Democrats voted largely for Nixon. But then, hey, what about 1976? Jimmy Carter, 
a white Southern Democrat gets elected president, very much not a racist, and he carries the South in 1976. I remember I wrote an article for Dissent Magazine in 1976 saying, this shows that the right kind of white Democrat can still carry the South. I, I think I turned out to be wrong about that, but what exactly made it possible for Jimmy Carter to get back those white Democratic voters who had voted for George Wallace and voted for Nixon? Well, he was an unusual figure, as you know. Uh, he was not a great crusader for civil rights, but he, he was a, what you, I think you have to call a moderate on civil rights. Uh, he wanted to protect the laws already passed. He didn't talk about um, passing more laws. He wasn't a big backer of affirmative action, at least not in the campaign. Um, and I think also um, it was sort of a sense of pride that a lot of, a lot of white the Democrats had. Uh, and by the way, most, most white Southerners were still Democrats by then, which they are not now. But, but the registration was still Democratic, even though they, were, they had voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. Uh, but they voted for, for white uh, Democrats uh, for Congress and the Senate for the most part, uh, and also for governor. So um, I think Carter was able to win enough white votes uh, away from the northern uh, 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 Republican president at the time, uh, Gerald Ford. Uh, and, and, and when he put those votes together with uh, votes of, of almost all uh, black Southerners, who by then were voting as well, then he was able to win states like Mississippi and his own Georgia that uh, Democrats uh, haven't won since. But he was unusual in that sense. In 1980, when, when Ronald Reagan runs against him, um, um, a lot of other things were happening too, but most white uh, uh, Southern voters had decided that Carter was too far left for them, too friendly to black people for them, and, and they voted for Ronald Reagan. So it was a, a one-time thing. All right, 2016, Trump carried the entire South, every state except Virginia. That, of course, was a terrible, and it seems ominous for 2020. What do you think? Can Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or somebody else do better than Hillary did in the South as a Democrat in 2020? Well, again, I think as we saw this with the elections uh, last fall, Democratic candidates coming close uh, to being elected governor in Georgia and in Florida. Uh, Stacey Abrams, you know, with a with a honest vote, probably would have won actually. Um, and um, uh, Beto O'Rourke coming fairly close to beating Ted Cruz in, in Texas. Uh, I think it shows that uh, Democrats can at least come very close to winning. Uh, uh, and if they can do come close to winning in a midterm, you think they should be able to come even closer in a presidential election where more people vote. The problem, of course, is that um, you need to have a, a very large black turnout uh, and probably a turnout of more recent uh, immigrants, uh, especially from uh, Latin American countries as well, which the numbers are growing, of course, in, uh, in the South, uh, as they are everywhere, uh, in order to defeat uh, Trump, who is very, very popular among among most white Southerners, uh, because he seems to be you know, supporting issues they care, uh, care a lot about. Uh, um, opposing abortion rights, for example, uh, you know, taking a uh, have to be said a racist stance about uh, immigrants from south of the border and so forth. So, so in some ways, uh, Trump, though he's from uh, he's from southern New York, <laughs> uh, has become uh, sort of a uh, uh, symbolic southerner. I think. Well, we started out by saying that uh, economic justice issues were able to win the support of southern whites in the mid-20th century, does that mean that Bernie's message would have strong resonance in the South today among whites as well as blacks? I think a lot of his programs would. I mean, if you look at the polls, I think um, 
in polls that if you don't say this is Bernie Sanders' program, but you talk about uh, free or very cheap college, you talk about everyone being covered by Medicare, um, you talk about getting the uh, influence of big money out of politics, uh, I think a lot of white Southerners would support those stands. But when they're connected to a guy who calls himself a socialist who's from New York, who's Jewish, so I'm not sure how important that is anymore, but you know, we might find out. Uh, then he, he appears kind of alien, I think, to most uh, white Southerners. But if you had, say, uh, Stacey Abrams <coughs> talking that way, um, she might win more white votes than you think, and certainly Better O'Rourke probably would as well. So, so I think um, you know, politics, as you know, is, is not just about program or about policy. It's about the the person who uh, is speaking uh, about those programs and those policies, and that, and that is always going to matter a lot. Michael Kazin wrote about the Southern Paradox, the Democratic Party below the Mason-Dixon line for The Nation. You can read his piece at thenation.com. Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. I love doing it. Thanks. Finally, on this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, Dave talks about the broader issues of human sex trafficking raised by the charges against the owner of the New England Patriots, Robert Kraft. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.